0: Thanks, Dan. It's good to pray, isn't it? When um, we cast our burdens on the Lord, I have this picture on my mind of the Lord carrying our burdens, but there's another thing that happens as well, is that those burdens are lifted off of our shoulders before they're put on the Lord's shoulders. And what a relief that is. Praise God. So this, um, this week we'll be finishing up Uh, Joshua chapter 3 a few weeks ago when we started uh, Joshua chapter 3 we talked about how Joshua rose early in the morning and led the people out of Shittim and headed for the Jordan River Um, before we continue let's pray Father again we thank you for your word we thank you for the encouragement in um, this uh, story, this true story that You do go before us, Lord, and that You do go along with us in whatever trial we have, Lord. We thank You that we can be encouraged by that. And uh, please uh, let us uh, leave here today, Lord, um, encouraged uh, through You and Your Word and what You do on behalf of Your people, Lord. We thank You and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So uh, Joshua told the people to stay back 3,000 feet uh, for a few reasons, so you recall, uh, so that they would know the way they should go and so that the people might observe the Lord doing wonders among them. And then Joshua told the people to consecrate themselves. Uh, they were to prepare for this wonder that the Lord was going to do. And they, and they weren't going to prepare in the sense that to, you know, they made sure they got a good spot on the hill you know, to watch this and that the kids had enough snacks and there was enough bug spray and, and sunscreen to go around. It's not that kind of preparation. It's, uh, they were preparing their hearts. Uh, they, were, they were to prepare their hearts and souls because as Joshua said, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. And the wonder is not that God would be doing this great deed to impress the people or, or to show off His abilities or to flex His muscles so to speak. It's about God revealing Himself to His people. It's about God displaying not just His power and might, but also displaying His character. And sometimes I wonder if we really get the meaning behind the miracle or or some of the miracles that God uh, does. And we'll talk a little bit more about that in this chapter. Because we need to remember that God said, I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you, and do not be frightened and do not be dismayed, for the Lord is with you wherever you go. God said those things, and now He's going to prove it again. Uh, Just as He had many times before, God will do it again. That's His character. That's who God is. I mean, in in a similar way, it's not enough to just Tell our spouse or our children or our siblings, our friends, our neighbors that we love them, that we care for them. Those words would be meaningless if we didn't back them up with action. You know, action consistent with those words. And unlike you and me, God promises to act and never fails. He never fails to keep those promises. And God makes covenants and never fails to honor those covenants. So God asked the people to prepare their hearts so that God might display or reveal His character to them through the wonders He was about to do. And then, uh, recall, the priests acted in faith as they set out with the Ark of the Covenant, uh, which symbolizes God's presence, and they were told, when you come to the brink of the waters of the Jordan, you shall stand still in the Jordan. And that's where we left off a few weeks ago with the beginning of chapter 3, stepping out in faith and waiting to see what wonders the Lord will do. So let's read the rest of the chapter, starting in verse 9. Joshua 3, verse 9. And Joshua said to the people of Israel, Come here and listen to the words of the Lord your God. And Joshua said, here is how you shall know. Here is how you shall know that the living God is among you, and that He will, without fail, drive up from before you the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hivites, the Perizzites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, and the Jebusites. Behold, the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of all the earth is passing over before you into the Jordan. Now, therefore, take twelve men from the tribes of Israel from each tribe a man. And when the soles of the feet of the priests bearing the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, shall rest in the waters of the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan shall be cut off from flowing, and the waters coming down from above shall stand in one heap. So when the people set out from their tents to pass over the Jordan with the priests bearing the ark of the covenant before the people, And as soon as those bearing the ark had come as far as the Jordan, and the feet of the priests bearing the ark were dipped into the brink of the water, now the Jordan overflows all its banks throughout the time of harvests. The waters coming down from above stood and rose up in a heap very far away at Adam, the city that is beside Zarathon. And those flowing down toward the Sea of Arabah, the Salt Sea, were completely cut off. And the people passed over opposite Jericho. Now the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stood firmly on dry ground in the midst of the Jordan. And all Israel was passing over on dry ground until all the nation finished passing over the Jordan. Praise God for His Word. So here, I'd like to point out something before we get into the passage. It's the little matter-of-fact, uh, parenthetical note in verse 15. And, and it's literally in parentheses in, in many versions of the Bible. It says, Now the Jordan overflows all its banks throughout the time of harvest. So now, why does the author insert this information right there in the middle of a dramatic description of the crossing of the Jordan event. Well, the author is trying to uh, point out the exceptional nature of this miracle. Normally, the Jordan River isn't very intimidating. Its, it's average depth would have been about um, 3 to 10 feet and its width, you know, 30 to 100 feet. You know, not a very impressive river. However, the time of the harvest that the writer mentions is in the spring. Between March and April. And in the early spring, the river would have been dramatically swollen due to spring rains and the snow melt from the mountains. So thus, you know, the river overflows all its banks while at the same time becomes a raging river with a floodplain up to a mile wide. So the author wants us to know that the waters stopped by God were no less incredible you know, than the Red Sea crossing. Uh, in fact, later on, the author will describe, as we read, the, the river water stopping as rising up in a heap. And that's the same word, heap, and it's the same description as used when the waters of the Red Sea were parted. Um, uh, Suzanne uh, shared this uh, picture of the Jordan River uh, when it's in a uh, flood stage. So, you know, picture that up to a mile wide, and uh, you get an idea of what the river looks like. So with that in mind, uh, let's go to verse 9. And Joshua said to the people of Israel, Come here and listen to the words of the Lord your God. So as, as the verse says, Joshua is going to speak, but he would be speaking God's words. And, and the people were to listen. Joshua speaking on behalf of God. Is, uh, um, this, uh, this is part of his exaltation and, and his appointment as the new leader of the Israelites. Now Joshua knows and he declares that these are not my words, but these are God's words and and the people are to listen. Because Joshua has now become the voice of God uh, in place of uh, Moses. So as I mentioned before in the past, listening or hearing in the Bible is usually accompanied with obeying. Uh, Listen and obey, hear and obey. Uh, The two usually go together. But here... Uh, God, through uh, Joshua, is commanding the people to listen. And in verse 10, He tells them why. Verse 10, He says, Here is how you shall know. Well, know what? That the living God is among you. And that He will, without fail, drive out from before you all those people. So Joshua begins his speech by telling the people exactly what they should learn and take away from what God is about to do. And rather than assuming that they'll come to correct conclusions, Joshua cuts to the chase and provides them with the conclusions that God wants them to arrive at. Uh, and, and as I mentioned, there's two of them. In the wonders that God was about to perform, the people would be able to know two things with certainty. The living God is among them, and He will without fail drive out from before the Israelites. All the people groups currently living in the promised land. So those, those are the truths that God wanted them to learn uh, from what was He was about to do. And I was thinking about how, wouldn't it be great if God always uh, told us exactly what He wants us to learn from the experiences that we go through in life. But He doesn't, he doesn't always do that. Sometimes we learn after the fact. But in this case, God made it completely clear. The living God, also known as the one true God, who alone is alive and real and powerful and works wonders, was dwelling with them and going with them into the river, across the river, and into the promised land uh, beyond uh, and the uh, upcoming battles. And, And the people... Uh, currently living in the promised land, they they were deluding themselves by serving dead idols. Dead idols that that they had created with their own hands and with their own minds. But the Israelites, by contrast, were were intimately connected with the one true living God, the Creator, the Sustainer of the universe, who was fully committed uh, to fighting their battles as they trusted in Him and as they walked in his ways. I mean, victory was certain. And this made me think of uh, has someone ever asked you to do something and you said, consider it done? You know, sometimes I've said that, but you know, that's kind of like making a, a vow that you might not be able to keep. Well, in reality, only God can truly say that. When God says, I will do, he will do. God, um, we, we can truly say, I mean, God can truly say, consider it done, and it will be done. I found this passage from Isaiah uh, 56, uh, Isaiah um, uh, speaking on behalf of God. It says, Remember the former things, those of long ago. I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me. I make known the end from the beginning. From ancient times, what is still to come. I say, my purpose will stand. I will do all that I please. From the east, I summon a bird of prey. From a far off land, a man to fulfill my purpose. What I have said, that I will bring about. What I have planned, that I will do. That's God talking. And just incidentally, the, uh, the man from a far off land that fulfills God's purpose, that was Cyrus the Great. This was prophesied 150 years before Cyrus the Great, the Persian king, uh, freed the Jews from exile and allowed them to go back to Jerusalem. God said it 150 years before, and it was done. It happened. So again, uh, the truth is, the living God is among them, and he will without fail drive out the pagans from the promised land. In verse 11, we notice that Joshua must have been uh, giving his speech as the priests were in the process of carrying the ark toward the river. He says, Behold, he says, Look and see, the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth is crossing before you into the Jordan. Interestingly, Joshua uses the title Lord of all the earth. He uses it twice in these verses. Previously, Joshua's officers had talked about the ark as the ark of the covenant. The ark of the covenant of the Lord your God. Now Joshua describes it twice as the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth. Uh, In other words, the living God is not just the Lord of the Israelites. He's the Lord of all the earth. He created it and it all belongs to Him. And He's about to show His power and His control over it all as the priests carry the ark uh, and they step into the water in obedience to His instructions. These verses show that the meaning behind the miracle isn't just that God is awesome and He can do amazing things, like stop a raging river. I mean, that's part of it, of course. But Joshua explains the why or the reason for the miracle before the miracle even happens. And again, so that people can see and experience who God is through what He does. In verse 12, it seems like it's kind of a throw-in verse because it's talking about the next chapter. Joshua instructs the people to select one man from each of the twelve tribes. Uh, Again, these men will play an important role in chapter 4 for setting up memorials. With verse 13, Joshua, still speaking God's words, describes uh, to the people exactly what is going to happen. And when the soles of the feet of the priests bearing the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, shall rest in the waters of the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan shall be cut off from flowing, and the waters coming dr- down from above shall stand in one heap, so again, the language here is definitive. This is when it's going to happen. This is what is going to happen. And this is how. When? When the soles of the feet of the priests touch the water. What? The water shall be cut off. How? The water shall stand in one heap. And finally, in the last verses, we get to the actual event. So when the people set out from their tents to pass over the Jordan with the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant before the people, and as soon as those bearing the Ark had come as far as the Jordan, and the feet of the priests bearing the Ark were dipped in the brink of the water, the waters coming down from above stood and rose up in a heap very far away at Adam, the city that is beside Zarethan. And those flowing down toward the Sea of Arabah, the Salt Sea, were completely cut off and the people passed over opposite Jericho. I don't know about you, but to me, this is a very brief, matter-of-fact and somewhat anticlimactic description of what is an incredible and an amazing and an awesome miracle. That description, to me, uh, doesn't do it justice. It, it seems as if the writer is intentionally uh, downplaying the miracle. And as, as awesome as the miracle was, though, the miracle itself is not the takeaway expected of the Israelites. The takeaway or the lesson is about God. As verse 10 said, the miracle is about the Israelites knowing that God is among them, it's about faith in the living God who will do what he says. He will do. I mean, logically speaking, if the Lord can stop a raging river where he wants, when he wants, and how he wants, then surely he can repel the Amorites. If God can not only stop a river, but make it so that a couple million people, their stuff and their cattle, can cross on dry ground, not you know, not a muddy Riverbed, but dry ground, then surely He can put down the parasites. In other words, if the Lord of all the earth can get you into the land, then surely the Lord of all the earth can give you the land. Amen? Amen. The Apostle Paul uses similar logic in, in Romans 8.32. He says, He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Paul's using the same kind of logic there. Uh, commentator uh, Dale Davis wrote uh, regarding uh, Romans 8:32. He said, "If God did not hold back, but gave up his own Son for us, if he went that far, can we not then rest assured that He will grant all other provisions required?" for our salvation. In other words, our salvation is complete. Jesus paid it all. There's nothing that we can contribute. We simply believe. We put our trust in Christ alone as our savior. Amen. So now we can look back and we can see that if Israel had used that same logic after Exodus, after the Exodus, then, then they would have realized that the God who delivered them out of Egypt would take care of them in the wilderness. And, and the, believer, the believer can look to the rescue at the, at the Red Sea and the crossing of the Jordan and, and the taking of the promised land, and especially the death and resurrection of of Jesus Christ as examples of the power of God to not only bend and break the rules of physics or the laws of physics, but also to handle the many crises and anxieties that so often weigh us down. Isn't that true? The last verse, verse 17. Now the priests bearing the ark of the covenant of the Lord stood firmly on dry ground in the midst of the Jordan, and all Israel was passing over on dry ground. There's a reason he mentions it twice. Until all the nation finished passing over the Jordan. Because the dry ground is part of the miracle. And Once again, the Ark of the Covenant is mentioned. The Ark, representing the very presence of God, uh, along with the priests holding the Ark, they stand in the middle of the, the dry riverbed until all the people... Pass on to the other side. And this, to me, is a wonderful picture of of God's character. I mean, God wasn't literally there in person. Uh, That was yet to happen in the form of Jesus, right? Emmanuel, God with us. But the ark was right there in the middle of it all. And when you think about it, God put everything on the line here His power, His character, His reputation. The ark representing God is in the middle of the river and the people are obeying and crossing the river, passing the ark, passing over to the other side. Millions of them with all their stuff and they're doing exactly what God told them to do through Joshua. But imagine if God's power was limited. Or, or He wasn't as powerful as He claimed to be. And... and He could only hold back the waters for so long. And and the heap of water breaks loose and and the wall of water comes crashing down. (laughs) And, And the wall of water comes crashing down and sweeps away not only thousands of people, but also the ark, the symbol of God's presence the ark that's supposed to represent the almighty living God, the Lord of heaven and earth, etc., etc. I mean, what kind of God is that? That's a a small g God. That's bush league. It's a God who can't do what He claims to do. It's a God you can't trust. But that's not what happened. The river is stopped 18 miles upstream, by the way. That's where the town of Adam is. And the remaining water drains away as far as the eye can see. The riverbed becomes dry. The people and the ark cross over. And then the water returns precisely when God allows it to return after the millions of people and all their stuff and cattle safely cross to the other side and then after the priests with carrying the ark are safely across. And by the way, don't think that the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hivites, the Perizzites, the Girgashites, and the Amorites and the Jebusites weren't watching. Oh, they were watching. They were aware of all that was going on. They had their spies. And they saw the millions of Israelites on the opposite side. And they thought there was no way there's no way these people are getting across. And we'll get to them as we move further along in the book. But God is indeed Lord over all the earth, as we read in verses 11 and 13. God is indeed, as Jeremiah says, sovereign Lord. You have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. Amen? Amen. Amen. And we are made acutely aware that God is perfectly adequate. That He is the living God who works and intervenes and comes and saves and rescues and counsels and loves and cares for His people in all their weaknesses, in all their perplexities, and all their maddening hard-headedness. Guilty. Guilty, guilty, guilty. I was thinking that God could have chosen to have the people cross the river during dry season. I mean, it would have been less dramatic, but it would have gotten the job done. God could have told Joshua to summon the the Israeli Army Corps of Engineers and and told them to figure it out. Uh, Or the Seabees. All right, maybe not the Seabees. I love the slogan for the Seabees it says, The difficult we will do immediately the impossible might take a little more time. But the great thing about our God is the impossible doesn't take any longer for Him. There's no difference for God between the difficult and the impossible. But no, God chose to have His people cross the river precisely at the time when the feat looked and was impossible. And this seems to be typical of God who, who delights in showing His might and His power and His strength in the face of our weaknesses, our helplessness. In that way, we can't help but see that it's God at work and that, and that we don't contribute anything to our deliverance. I'm wrapping up. At the same Jordan River, when, when God told Gideon to seize the Midianite stronghold, twice God said to Gideon, You have too many men. And Gideon must have been thinking, Too many men? This is war. How can you have too many men? But God had Gideon take just 300 men with him. He pared it down from like 30,000. God had Gideon take just 300 men with him. Why? Because as God said, Israel would boast against me and say, My own strength has saved me. Well, Gideon trusted God and God delivered the Midianites into his hands. Perhaps God sometimes brings brings us into impossible circumstances. uh, Situations that seem bleak and hopeless. Only to impress upon us that if we trust Him, we will endure. If we trust Him, we will make it through. We will not be overwhelmed and we will not be washed away. And it will be solely because of His grace and of His power. It's His way of teaching us that through our own ability and helplessness, we might realize that, as Psalm 121-2 reminds us, help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. Amen? Amen. Praise God.